This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Governor Tony Evers announced today that he plans to send every resident of Wisconsin a $150 tax rebate. The Associated Press says the move comes after it was announced earlier this week that the state had a $3.8 billion surplus in their budget. Republicans have stated that they intend to deal with the surplus next year, but Evers said that the people need money now and that the move would return taxpayers their money. The rebate would cost around $1.7 billion from the surplus. Also with the rebate, Evers announced plans to send $750 million to schools across the state, as well as $1 billion in tax cuts. The spending plan will still need to get approval from the Republican-led legislature. Republican Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMayhew says he rejects the governor's proposal. And another Republican has joined the race for Wisconsin governor, as Kevin Nicholson officially announced his campaign today. The Capital Times reports that the move comes after Assembly Speaker Robin Voss called on Nicholson not to run for governor, putting all of his cards behind former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish. Nicholson does not hold any political experience outside of a failed run for U.S. Senate in 2018. Nicholson says that, if elected, he intends to end state funding to Planned Parenthood and officially put an end to absentee ballot drop boxes. The Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled today that Robin Voss was allowed to use taxpayer-funded private attorneys leading up to the redistricting legal battle, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss and Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMayhew signed contracts over a year ago for two private law firms before any legal argument over redistricting had begun. Lester Pines, who represents the taxpayers challenging the law, says that outside legal counsel under taxpayer expense should not be allowed until the case was declared. Today's ruling overturned a previous ruling by a Dane County judge who moved to block the hiring of the private attorneys. The Associated Press reports that Chief Justice Annette Ziegler, who voted to overturn the previous ruling, said that the law is, quote, unambiguous, end quote. A Nebraska-based voting machine company announced today that they will not comply with subpoenas issued by 2020 presidential election investigator Michael Gableman. The Associated Press reports that attorneys for the company Election Systems and Software said that they had no obligation to cooperate with the subpoena and that would not they would not meet in a private hearing with Gableman. The company says that it would take weeks or even months to even gather the information that Gableman requested. The taxpayer-funded investigation, which has cost taxpayers over $676,000, is supposed to finish by next month. Gableman did not immediately respond for comment to the Associated Press. The Capital Times reports that nurses in Dane County have officially proposed a trauma recovery plan for nurses to the Dane County Board of Supervisors. The move comes as hospitals are seeing record hospitalizations from the COVID pandemic, as well as a high turnover rate amongst staff. Pat Rays, a nurse and president of SEIU Healthcare Wisconsin, the state's largest healthcare workers union, also plans to propose a resolution for a healthcare workforce trauma recovery and training program. 
The program looks to focus on the impact the pandemic has had on healthcare and figure out a path forward mm -hmm. for healthcare workers. And now for today's COVID numbers, there were 8,050 or eight, excuse me, there were 8,085 new COVID cases across the state yesterday, bringing the seven-day average to 7,958 new cases each day over the past week. This continues a downward trend from just two weeks ago, when the state saw over 15,000 new cases every day. There were 24 new deaths from the virus yesterday, with an average of 33 people dying every day over the past week. Here in Dane County, there were 937 new cases of the virus yesterday, with one reported death. Over 78% of people in Dane County have gotten both doses of the COVID vaccine, and 66.3% of people have received a booster. And now on to today's top stories. A pair of bills was introduced to the state assembly yesterday that will block medical providers from offering gender-affirming treatment to transgender youth. The Republican-led bills come amid a, amid a wave of similar bills being introduced across the country. WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout has more. The bills, with the Assembly bill written by Republican Representative Scott Allen of Waukesha and the Senate bill written by Republican Senator Andre Jacques, would bar hormone treatment, puberty blockers, and surgeries from being given to anyone under 18 years of age. The Help Not Harm Act, as it's being called, claims that such treatment can be harmful to children. Allen says that he is worried about gender-affirming treatment in youth. Well, there seems to be a, uh, a growing sort of contagion in um, uh, youth undergoing medical procedures for gender transition. And um, before it, uh, you know, sort of grows uh, tremendously, I think it's probably a good idea for us to have a public policy discussion about it. In a press release, Allen says that people who undergo gender transition have a higher suicide rate than the general population. Sean O'Brien, the advocacy and organizing strategist of Fair Wisconsin, a nonprofit that advocates for LGBTQ rights, says that he disagrees. Research shows that transgender youth whose families support their gender identity have a 52% decrease in suicidal thoughts a 48% decrease in suicide attempts and a significant increase in self-esteem and in their general health. So, you know, being a kid is hard enough and we don't need politicians making it even harder for kids who are trans uh, and denying them best, best care medical practice um, will increase um, and single them out for bullying and harassment. According to the Journal of Sexual Medicine, less than half of 1% of people who transition go on to regret their decision. An issue of note in the bills are puberty blockers, which are a prescription which block the release of puberty-causing hormones. According to Mayo Clinic, this process is fully reversible and not permanent. Allen says, however, that this is not true and that they may be harmful. Um, I'm, as I understand the effects of puberty blockers, they can have uh, significant irreversible consequences because of the impacts on the holistic maturation process. Uh, I think it's important. Uh, the reason for the bill is to make sure that we're providing the help that people need and not uh, providing 
you know, harm to their bodies that are that is irreversible. That's the purpose of the bill. Under the bill, parents or legal guardians of someone receiving this treatment would be able to sue doctors and medical professionals for prescribing the treatment. A lawsuit could also be opened by the attorney general or any district attorney in Wisconsin. O'Brien says that the bills are built upon a lack of understanding of medical care. I would say that this is uh, probably the most extreme political attack on transgender and non-binary people uh, that I can remember. It displays a fundamental lack of understanding uh, of our transgender children, and it criminalizes best practice medical care for our transgender children, which is all backed by the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association and many other medical leading authorities. The bills are part of a nationwide push to ban gender-affirming medical care to children. In 2021, Republicans introduced 58 similar bills across the nation, with some using the same help-not-harm name. This is also not the first anti-transgender bill introduced by Representative Allen. In 2021, he introduced two bills to keep transgender women from competing in women's sports. Those assembly bills have not yet received a vote. The bills are currently circulating for co-sponsorship. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. <clears throat> it's now 6.16 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Childcare is at a premium here in Wisconsin, with the rising costs and a lack of teachers to watch parents' children. Now, this is causing some parents to have to decide, join the workforce or stay at home with their children. To learn more about this challenge, WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with Natalie Yar, business and economy reporter at the Capital Times, whose newest story outlines the issue. As Wisconsin continues to struggle with labor shortages, one aspect that is keeping parents of young children away from working is the rising cost of child care, both around the state and around the country. In a new article by the Capital Times, reporter Natalie Yar states that over half of Wisconsin's zip codes are considered, quote, child care deserts, end quote. Natalie joins me now to discuss the issues surrounding child care in Wisconsin and what can be done to help. Natalie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So let's just start off with the numbers. How much does it currently cost for child care here in Wisconsin? And how has that cost changed over the last decade? Uh, yes, in Wisconsin, the average cost of care for an infant, which is the most expensive kind of uh, child care, uh, is more than $12,000. That means, according to the Economic Policy Institute, that it's 48% more than in-state tuition for a four-year public college. Uh, Wisconsin is not alone in that, but uh, having child care costs and having child care costs that are higher than in-state tuition, higher than rent, um, is a pretty common phenomenon in the United States. Uh, in Dane County, our cost for infant care is on average uh, about $16,000 a year. And as for how has that number changed, uh, it's, it's been uh, just increasing over the years. Uh, since uh, 1993, the cost has gone up um, about 50% in inflation-adjusted dollars. So our costs are only growing uh, and have potentially risen further during the pandemic. So in the article 
You mentioned that last year, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen called child care a, quote, textbook example of a broken market, end quote. Can you explain to me a little bit what she means by that? Yeah, uh, Yellen explained that um, in this case, she thinks of child care as uh, a broken market because the price that uh, we are paying when we pay for child care isn't really accounting for all the good things that come out of childcare indirectly. Like, for example, uh, that kids who are in high-quality childcare tend to stay in school longer and get jobs that pay better. Uh, so we're not just paying for kids to be safe in that moment. We're paying for kind of an investment in the future. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence that backs up uh, what Yellen was saying. Um, so economists have tried to quantify exactly what is this return on investment um, that we get when we invest in high-quality childcare programs. Uh, and the di- different studies differ about uh, exactly what this might be, but it's clear that the return is high, that it's probably somewhere between $7 and $17 for each dollar invested. So the, and the cost of not investing uh, is also uh, quite high. So one 2019 study by the Council for a Strong America found that insufficient child care is costing families about $37 billion a year, and it's costing employers about $13 billion a year. Now, this is really affecting women in the workplace across the country with parents having to choose between having a job and having the majority of their paycheck go towards childcare or leaving their job and becoming a stay-at-home parent. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Uh, and the article mostly focuses on women leaving the workforce. Is this uh, largely a gendered issue? Yes, it's it's very interesting as we hear now the conversation about worker shortages and um, are people coming back to work to think about this calculation that families are doing and the parents are doing to decide, you know, does it make sense for me to take a job and earn a paycheck um, when I will also have to pay these costs for childcare? And uh, even the secretary of the Department of Children and Families for the state of Wisconsin, Emily Amundsen, she talked about how she herself as a state worker and her husband, who was a teacher, uh, were doing this calculation every year when they had uh, their children to decide whether it made sense for him to work or not work. And one year, she said, um, when their kids were one and three, um, he just dropped out of the labor force for that year because his whole paycheck would have gone to childcare. So yes, this is a calculation that families are doing. And of course, it works differently for different families. Some folks, you know, make high enough paychecks that it does still make sense for them to pay that. And some don't. So I spoke to Ashley Zhang for my story. She's become a stay-at-home mom because she was working, she studied social work. She was a recent college grad and was working as a parent educator uh, for a nonprofit in Madison. And uh, when she had her kid last year, she just decided that her whole paycheck would have gone to paying for her her daughter's childcare, and that it just didn't make sense for their family. So yes, this is a calculation that families are doing all the time, and um, it and these costs in that calculation may also uh, explain part of why uh, women's labor force participation leveled off in the 1990s and has been declining since the turn of the century. You know, we've seen uh, cost for childcare rising and we've seen, uh, we've not seen more women start going, starting to go into the labor force. 
Uh, and one economist that I talked to uh, estimates that in Wisconsin, you know, we might have as many, like we might have around 100,000 uh, women not participating in the labor force um, and that childcare could be a substantial reason for that. Now, as far as is this a gendered issue, um, I think it is importantly affecting women more than um, men, likely, but um, it is by no means exclusively um, a women's issue. Uh, certainly, um, there, you know, I've spoken to a single dad, um, you know, a union worker who talked about, um, you know, the cost that he was bearing um, in paying for uh, his uh, child's care. Uh, and uh, certainly in the case of Emily Amundsen, you know, her husband was the one who dropped out of the workforce in that case. So it certainly is not exclusive to women. And clearly any, um, you know, any issues that affects families can affect both, um, you know, people of all genders. Um, I would also say that, you know, as a labor force issue, um, as uh, Tessa Conroy, one of the economists that I spoke to mentioned, you know, it's, it's never just a women's issue when it's an issue affecting the entire economy, that it's an economic development issue. So let's talk a little bit now about the companies. You talked to a couple different companies in your article. Mm -hmm. What are they trying to do to help to try and ease this burden? Yes. So uh, for this story, I learned about you know a variety of things from the kinds of uh, benefits that are sometimes standard for uh, certain workplaces. So in that case, we've got the, for example, flexible spending accounts, uh, a type of uh, workplace benefit that you might be familiar with from uh, saving for medical expenses, where people can save pre-tax dollars uh, from their paychecks uh, for medical expenses. Uh, some employers also offer a thing like that, but for dependent care, where people can save for childcare expenses or uh, elder care uh, out of their paychecks. Um, that's one rather common benefit, uh, at many employers. Uh, and then, uh, you know, you just hear folks like, um, American Family Insurance said it's negotiated a lower rate for its employees at some of the childcare centers around Madison. Um, but what we're seeing now is some employers starting to think about what other role would they like to play in this. So, uh, what other role would they like to play in, in helping their employees address the costs of childcare and the challenges in finding childcare? So we're seeing some employers start lobbying for, for example, the Build Back Better plan, uh, which, which would have spent, uh, nearly $390 million on reducing the cost of childcare, um, making, uh, preschool free, um, et cetera. Um, and so we're seeing some employers say, this is a huge problem for um, us as employers to get the workers that we need. Uh, and we're not prepared to solve this uh, on our own, that they want to see government uh, intervention on that matter. What is being done to ease the access to child care here? Yeah. Um, well, uh, the the Build Back Better plan, um, if it were approved or um, as that's seeming increasingly unlikely, you know, if portions of it, for example, a, a portion about childcare, um, were approved separately, which is what uh, President Biden is now discussing, 
um, that could certainly um, create major changes in the landscape of childcare and uh, how affordable it is and also um, potentially stabilize some things for childcare providers who've really been living with very tight margins for a long time. Um, so that, that's one possibility. Uh, the uh, state of Wisconsin uh, through the Department of, of Children and Families is working with employers now um, to try to like look for what they call, you know, innovative partnerships, uh, ways that employers might work with childcare providers to try to find new ways to do these things. Again, that might be lending space uh, to a child care provider or employers purchasing um, spots uh, in child care for their employees, things like that. Um, so these are some of the possibilities being discussed. But I think there's just this general sense among a variety of players that um, child care is kind of this key part of our infrastructure uh, and that our workforce, especially in Wisconsin, where we're rather short of workers, is not going to function um, as well as it could without um, some sort of way of helping um, families and workers deal with, with this challenge. Um, and then one more thing that's been done recently is uh, the state of Wisconsin has um, made some changes to its system for subsidizing child care, the Wisconsin Shares Program, to try to uh, allow folks to um, stay on that program longer as their incomes begin to grow so that families aren't faced with kind of deciding just as they begin to be able to afford their family's expenses, um, having to suddenly lose their child care subsidy and, and put the full bill for child care on their own. I've been speaking with Natalie Yar, reporter with the Capital Times, on her new article on child care costs and its effect on the labor market. You can read the full article online at captimes.com. Natalie, thank you so much again for talking with me. Thank you very much for giving me the time. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Please stay with us. We've got lots more stories coming up. Two healthcare conglomerates fight over employees. And Radio Chipstone looks at textiles and printmaking. But first, we'll take a quick break, check in on some world headlines, and we'll be right back. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with Stacy Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Two health systems serving patients in and around the Fox Valley were in court this week, fighting over a team of critical care technicians and nurses. The case between ThetaCare and Ascension made national headlines, but of course local reporters had the story first. Earlier this evening, News Director Sholly Pittman caught up with one reporter who has been following the story from the beginning. Earlier this week, an Outagamie judge lifted a temporary restraining order preventing several healthcare workers from starting new jobs in Appleton at Ascension, one of the largest Catholic health systems in the United States. 
The restraining order had been filed by the workers' former employer, ThetaCare, which argued that with the departure of a bulk of its team that treats strokes, they might not be able to provide critical care to those victims. It's a story that blends labor issues with the recurring issue of access to health care, especially in rural Wisconsin, where access to the nearest hospital can be hours away. Madeline Heim is a statewide health and science reporter for the Appleton Post-Crescent. She had the scoop on this story even before the New York Times or the Washington Post. Madeline, thank you for joining me to chat about this today. Thanks so much for having me. So who are these seven employees, the, the bulk of a team that used to treat stroke and trauma victims at ThetaCare and who are now cleared to work at a competitor, Ascension? That's quite a lot of people to be making the same job switch at once. Yeah, so I'll back up and kind of start from the beginning that, you know, these seven employees are um, interventional radiology technicians and nurses. So they assist uh, the interventional radiologists with um, kind of high-level procedures for either people who suffered strokes or people who have suffered trauma. And basically what they can do, it's a pretty specialized procedure, is go in and um, through a process called embolization, they stop um, bleeding in specific areas of the body. Or in the case of a stroke, they can actually free up blood flow to go back into the brain. So these folks were part of an 11-member team who worked on that at Thetacare's Nina Hospital. Um, and they uh, had all been there for you know a variety of years but some of them as long as 11 years. Um, And, you know, they were a really tight-knit group. Um, Sounds like from the court testimony that we heard that they all really loved working with each other. Um, And they, you know, had some disgruntlement after a couple other members of their team were let go early last year. And at that point, a few of them started to look for other jobs. And one of them, you know, she was the first one to apply for this open position with Ascension. When she got an offer, she uh, brought it to her, the rest of her team, because she, you know, liked working with them and she wanted to share that, you know, hey, you can get better pay here and, and we can get better work-life balance. And I think that's an important thing to note is that it wasn't necessarily the pay it sounded like that was an issue here for these people. It was really the amount of time that they need to be on call um, at the hospital. It sounded like at Theta Care they had to do that more frequently than at Ascension. So by working at Ascension, um, they were able to, you know, have more time at home with their families. So they kind of went through this process of a few of them had applied. Once they all had offers, they actually brought them to Theta Care and asked, you know, will you match this? And Theta Care took a little bit of time and eventually said, no, we will not. And, you know, communicated to them that it would be fine for them to take this other job. So, yeah, and then flash forward to where we are today, where right before the last few folks were getting ready to put in their last days, Betacare did go ahead and file this lawsuit along with a temporary injunction to try to prevent those employees from starting at Ascension until they could find replacements. So we've talked about the workers. Can you tell me about these hospitals, Ascension St. Elizabeth and ThetaCare Nina, both hospitals part of these larger networks, but where are they located and how far away are they from each other? And, you know, we're in Madison, so you you might know and it might be common parlance where you are, but maybe not for a Madison audience. Yeah. So uh, so ThetaCare is a uh, Fox Valley. Valley-based health system. Um, They have hospitals all in and around the Sox Valley. Um, They have two flagships in Appleton and Nina. Nina is actually their their number one hub. 
which is about, you know, 15 minutes from Appleton. And then they have smaller rural hospitals out in, in uh, more rural parts of the Fox Valley. And then Ascension, obviously, like you've said, is a large national health system. So the the difference between Ascension St. Elizabeth and Theta Cares Hospital, and this is something that we really heard a lot about in the court proceedings, is that um, when it comes to trauma and stroke patients, Care has these two special designations that are a bit higher than the designations that are certifications that St. Elizabeth has. Care is a level two trauma center, which means that they, you know, as a part of that, they need to have basically around the clock specialists available like these interventional radiologists, uh, techs and nurses to care for patients who um, might come in with trauma wounds. And as for strokes, it's it's the same sort of thing. They're a, they're a comprehensive stroke center, which again, requires requires that kind of 24-7 care, whereas Ascension um, is just a step lower on both of those scales. Ascension uh, St. Elizabeth is a level three trauma center, which, you know, obviously has the capacity to care for those patients, but they do sometimes end up transferring patients to Theta Care Nina. Um, and then they're a primary stroke center, which again, Ascension has those folks on staff. It's my understanding that they don't need that um, 24-7 availability. So, you know, it, it might, they might not be on all the time on call. So that's kind of the difference in that respect. However, they do use the same groups of physicians. So that's another thing we kind of heard about in this court proceeding and from some of the employees is that, you know, the same doctors are working at both hospitals. So it's not as if there's no care for strokes or trauma in the Fox Valley. If, if these employees leave, you know, you, you can get that at Ascension St. Elizabeth. It's just that they don't have those special certifications. So that's interesting that they work at both hospitals. How is that? Are they, they're at will employees? Yeah. So, and I I don't want to speak too much to this just because that part is not something I've delved real deep into, but I, but, you know, physicians often have their own like groups, you know, and they practice in groups of physicians and they can practice at multiple hospitals when it comes to the physicians, like the, the doctors treating the patients. I think that's how that works. But again, that's, that's a little different than the focus of this story. So I don't want to talk too much about it. <laughs> no, that's totally okay. So let's move on to what the, the meat of this story is on and what you've covered. Uh, this all ended up in court. It has kind of a complicated backstory, and that's where you're here to help us untangle it. Now, Theta Care, where the employees were leaving, had filed an injunction saying that these employees couldn't start their new jobs because Theta Care would be in a very difficult position. Tell me more about Theta Care's argument, why this ended up in the courts at all, and when this started. Yeah. So, uh, like I had said previously, um, you know, the employees did approach, uh, Care leadership and announced their intention to leave and, you know, gave them the chance to match and they didn't. But at that point, it sounds like Care uh, did reach out to folks at Ascension and asked to coordinate some sort of orderly, you know, transition period because they were worried about these seven people leaving all at the same time. And they argued in court earlier this week that uh, Ascension was not open to that. Uh, they, they didn't want to cooperate 
and they, you know, they weren't interested in kind of creating that orderly transition. Of course, Ascension says that Theta Care had a couple weeks to, to figure out what they wanted to do and, you know, shouldn't have been relying on Ascension making this exception to, to help them out in this case. But so Theta Care essentially, you know, after these talks didn't work out, they went ahead and filed a lawsuit. And in that lawsuit, they're essentially alleging that Ascension inappropriately recruited these folks and took them all at once, even knowing that would be debilitating to Theta Care's team. Part of their argument is this is a really tough time during the pandemic. It's really tough to do this during the pandemic. So, yeah, and the the judge actually initially granted the temporary injunction barring the employees from starting at Ascension. And so then we saw all those employees were actually in the courtroom on Monday because they weren't able to go to work for either health system because, you know, the judge really can't order them to go back to Theta Care. That runs into issues with the 13th Amendment and involuntary servitude. So he can't really tell them to go back to Theta Care, but they weren't allowed to go to Ascension either on Monday because of the temporary injunction. However, he did overturn the temporary restraining order, temporary injunction on Monday. So those employees were able to go to work at Ascension on Tuesday. But the broader case is actually still, as far as I know, moving forward. So the court will have the chance to examine whether or not Ascension did inappropriately group recruit these employees all at once. Um, and the facts of that are, you know, really unknown at this point. So that's that's kind of where it's at now. So first, I can't imagine starting a new job and then being pulled to court for that as part of this back and forth between my two employers. But secondly, with this ongoing lawsuit, what is the relief here? Because it's obvious that the employees do not want to return to Theta Care. They want to work at Ascension. What is the meat of this argument after the injunction, right, that's still ongoing? What is Theta Care hoping for? Yeah. So again, I, I don't want to speak specifically to what they're hoping for just because I, I haven't heard from them yet, you know, about what's going forward. But in this case, I have talked to some legal experts recently. And, you know, the thing that they would be seeking more generally is just damages, because as you said, you know, these employees are not going to go back to Theta Care. But Theta Care is spending money right now on, um, you know, asking folks who do similar positions to come in and fill these shifts, fill the on-call shifts. I know that they uh, mentioned in court that they're bringing in a vendor to help train people up on the specific skills, and that, they said, would be costing them about $11,000. So, you know, if it does move forward, I would assume that they'd just be seeking relief in the form of damages to kind of recoup them for some of the money that they're spending to fill these slots. So this is really concerning, right? The fact that perhaps this week uh, patients were not able to maybe receive care for a trauma or stroke. What does this kind of say about how much uh, these two hospitals are able to serve their community? Yeah, so I will say that one of the Theta Care leaders did testify on Monday that, you know, she has been able to pull staff together. And so it's not that they are not staffed right now. They, they are staffed and they're figuring out a solution. I think it's very difficult, it sounds like, but it's not that right now there's no trauma or stroke care in the, the Fox Valley. It, it sounds like they're they're figuring out a solution. It might just be quite hard. But yeah, I mean, I think it, it speaks more in general to just how tense things are right now with the pandemic and 
Sedicare and Ascension have a pretty long history of working well together, and especially they have during the pandemic. And, you know, one of them taking the other one to court is is really just a, a symptom of the times. I can't help but feel because, you know, things are so stressful and everyone has staff shortages. And I, I just can't help but think that in other times, you know, employees switch between Sedicare and Ascension all the time. I mean, that regularly happens, but it's, you know, it feels like it's high stakes now. And, and you're right, it's their argument is that people won't get care. And I think the Ascension folks would argue you can come get care at St. Elizabeth. You know, we might not have those certifications, but the care will be here. And in this specific case with this specific team now, you know, those same group of folks will be at Ascension St. Elizabeth, you know, who were at Theta Care. But, you know, that argument is still going to go forward in court. So I, I do want to be clear that, you know, I do think that there is still care for folks here if they need it. It just might be pretty difficult to, to put together right now. So I assume that you're going to continue to follow the story? Yes, definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. Excellent. Well, we'll have to have you back when this is resolved in the courts. Madeline Heim is a statewide health and science reporter for the Appleton Post Crescent. She has been reporting on the legal battles between two healthcare groups, and her reporting is linked in the New York Times, but she was there first. Madeline Heim, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thanks again for having me. It's 6.46 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Intercambios, Art, Stories, and Comunidad, is the title of a new exhibit on display in the Ruth Davis Design Gallery, in Nancy Nicholas Hall on UW-Madison's campus. The exhibit is a display of collaborative works between artists from Madison, Wisconsin and Oaxaca, Mexico. Roberto Torres Mata is one of the artists with work on display in the exhibit. In this edition of Radio Chipstone, Mata tells contributor Jennifer Fields how his work as a printmaker translated to working with textiles. Intercambios is basically an exchange of artistic practices from Madison, Wisconsin, and artists in uh, Oaxaca, Mexico. Do you know how did this relationship start? It started two years ago in 2019 when I was in Oaxaca for my internship through the School of Human Ecology. Uh, they got me a, an opportunity to work there for three months and I developed these ideas and I was talking to Carolyn Collinborn. And after that, I developed with the Dakota Mace and we were all talking about how to work together in relationship with Oaxaca and bring this artistic uh, practice and this beautiful aspect of, you know, the part of Mexico here in, in Wisconsin, you know, to demonstrate and exhibit the variety of work from textiles and printmaking. Roberto, then tell me about what it is about Oaxaca that sort of sparked this connection. Oaxaca is such a unique place in Mexico regionally because it's outside of major metropolitan cities. For example, Mexico City, it, Oaxaca is, uh, it doesn't have this industrialized, commercialized uh, center, you know, there's 
more of the local community culture traditions that has been passed down through generations. And it's uh, kind of mountain locked. So it sits in a valley and it's, it's such a distance from other major cities that it's, it's unique area still holds its old ancient history from the Sapotec and Mixtec people and indigenous history. Roberto, talk to me about your work that you have on display here and how that reflects that conversation, that community, that build, I want to say building of trust and relationship between you, Oaxaca, you know, Wisconsin, and, and the textiles. Talk to me about how you, I guess you could say that textiles have a language. If maybe you could talk to me about the language and, and how we see it in the language of your textiles and your work. In my background as a printmaker, and I have no background in textiles, textiles to me feels as it's alive, like it's a, a physical manifestation of somebody who made it and it carries on that identity about themselves. So textiles is such a unique material. You, I, People say it's craft. I say it's more than just craft. It's something that is uh, transcendent in, in the sense of like how we identify as humans, identify origin. And for me, I talk about migration a lot. And through my work, I incorporated these ideas uh, mixed with the traditions within each of the communities that I worked with in Oaxaca and translated through these uh, design specific uh, garments that is wearable, people can wear them and it'll show the like the body of, of the community and, and their stories. Is there something that you can say when you're working with textiles that you can't say with other medium that you would use for printmaking? Does it, did you have to learn a new language? Oh, definitely. That's, uh, you, as like, you know, as an artist, as a printmaker, you're patient, but in textiles, you have to learn more about patience. More so because you're, you're using your, more your hands, hand coordination, eye coordination, how to uh, work in stitching, embroidery, and knot work, and that's like old technology. You know, this is like goes way back centuries. And for me to like get familiar with this is just really uh, thriving in, in the new knowledge or old knowledge that I missed or I have not foreseen before. So printmaking itself is a technology that is uh, kind of industrial because you're using equipment, you're using uh, machines to produce the image with the process of using your hands in a sense, but textiles are more so with your hands all the time. Are there signs within your piece that can show sort of like that transformation or that deeper understanding going from printmaking to textile? There is uh, a few things that are very like new to me in the sense of like uh, dyeing fabric. Dyeing is a whole new other learning process and learning curve, especially in another printmaking uh facet that I've never learned before is eco prints using plant fibers, plant materials from your local 
you know, areas that really are native to the land that you're, you live in, uh, used in this artistic uh, method through with fabric. That is just, uh, just building on layers and layers of the identity of the land and the place you live and where you're from. Um, and also the types of like fabric, there's silk, there's cotton, there's rayon, there's handmade paper stitched onto cotton uh, textile. There's, uh, there's just a lot of different materials all mixed and combined together to tell a story. So describe the garment for me as we sit here looking at it. The one that I see um, has the Mexican eagle with the snake and, and this beak and the cactus. And, and this is the backside of this cuipil, uh, or it's basically, you can imagine a poncho. So better description would be, so it looks like a poncho, you can wear it as a poncho. Um, but they call it huipil or gaban. There's different names for different uh, design aspects of this garment. So for for the one that I'm looking at, Tito Mendoza with the eagle, Mexican eagle with a snake and cactus, I incorporated this image to identify where it comes from. It comes from Mexico. And also there's human figures swirling around the eagle to kind of represent this like endless spiral of people you know there's there's always movement of people coming back and forth to different places so i was trying to kind of capture uh, visualize and capture that kind of movement within the weaving itself you know what's interesting to me roberto you talked about the people swirling around in my mind, that always comes into a full circle. So it's interesting to me that as a printmaker who uses paper, you can make paper out of silk. You can make paper out of cotton. You can make paper out of some of the fibers that you use to create this garment. Yeah. Is that... Is, huh. What I'm trying to get at is like there's this full circle, sort of like in this garment with you and this printmaking. Do you see yourself within that circle or do you see yourself now having had this experience with textiles sort of like, you know how the sun has sunspots yeah. and those little things pop off the circle? Do you see like sunspots for you in your work when in relationship to this circle of, of life with the paper and the, and the yeah. textiles and the, and the, the fibers? Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm just, I play a role as an artist to you know, bring to life these objects or materials and have a space for them. And also as myself, as like, you know, my background as a printmaker, I'm not uh, formally uh, pr in practice of textiles, even though I am, I'm in collaboration with some of the artisans who made these pieces. So I'm like stepping into a different world that I can see, understand, um, I could do certain things, but I'm not so fully into the space where I could create these pieces on my own since it takes so many years of just experience and dedication and just knowledge of doing that. But also 
some of these pieces are specifically from different communities who for generations have been doing this. So stepping into that is, I don't feel like I feel that I should be working on that. There's someone who already does. So I want to give credit to those who do that work and I'll work with them and work together on building these ideas and spread that throughout every gallery or any space that allows them. And that's a wrap for WORT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonathan Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wakeyhout produced this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Find your favorite WORT shows on the WORT app. The local news is also available as a podcast. Find it wherever you subscribe. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night.